Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we're excited to chat with Linda Zink, the Chief Marketing Officer at the Simply Good Foods Company. Linda's illustrious career in the food and nutrition space include influential roles at Atkins Nutritionals and Quest Nutrition, both of which are now part of Simply Good Foods. Before joining the Simply Good Foods Company, Linda was instrumental in steering marketing and innovation at White Wave Foods and held pivotal positions at Kellogg, Clorox, and multiple other notable companies. Linda's expertise in marketing and product innovation has been a driving force in reshaping the way food companies approach health and wellness trends, and her journey reflects a deep understanding of both consumer behavior and market trends. In this episode, Linda delves into her extensive career from the evolution of Atkins and Quest brands to the challenges and successes of marketing in the ever-changing landscape of health-conscious consumerism. She also dishes out her insights on personal growth and leadership, reflecting on how her experiences have shaped her approach to innovation and team building. Without further ado, let's welcome Linda Zink, Chief Marketing Officer at the Simply Good Foods Company. Linda, thank you for joining us. I'm excited to speak with you here today. Thrilled to be here. I do have to say, for those who obviously can't see us right now, we're sitting in person doing this podcast interview, which is a bit of a luxury these days. It is. It's, you know, any chance I can get to New York, I always take it. So, Again, thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you here in New York. So especially on the heels of um, you have announced or rather your CEO has announced that you're taking on a big new job at Simply Good Foods from chief marketing officer to chief growth officer um, after many years in the, the you know, leading the marketing function. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that transition means and what's so what's the difference between those two roles? Sure, absolutely. So chief growth officer is a, a new title. Like you're starting to see it pop up more and more, uh, but it's really about looking to the future. And if you think about a chief marketing officer role, so much of it is the day-to-day. It's what's going on with your base business. How do you make sure you stay competitive? How do you make sure you've got new products each cycle? And from a chief growth officer perspective in a CPG organization, I'm going to be very focused on a three to five, maybe even a little bit beyond that timeline. What should the company be looking at from a strategic standpoint? How do the two brands that we have move forward longer term? So taking some of that um, future uh, work that it's really hard to get to when you're in the day to day. It's also going to look at how should we evolve as a company? Should we buy another company? How do we evolve from an M&A? How do we grow organically? And what does that look like? So very future looking. And so I'd say, you know, CMOs have to do that. You're always looking at what's going on today and how you think things are going to evolve. But it's hard to do that uh, on a daily basis when you're worrying about your shipments and your numbers on a day-to-day and your quarterly revenue. Yep. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And of course, the biggest news cycle in this sort of sector right now, um, if you were to think of the sector as weight loss, which obviously Simply Good Foods is also sort of like you know, like conscious eating right. and not just weight loss, but is t- you know, closely linked to the weight loss sector has been the impact of these weight loss drugs, Ozempic, Wegovy, et cetera. And you're looking out three to five years. What does that look like? It, uh, it's an evolving landscape, as you said. Um, it's 
you know, these drugs have been around for a decade, more than a decade, but very focused on diabetes patients. So lately, it's been prescribed off-label, Ozempic, Wagovi is uh, FDA cleared for use for weight loss, um, but people are starting to use it in ways that it wasn't developed because it has this great weight loss benefit. And we've done a lot of research with consumers, uh, both quantitative and qualitative. Um, your team has helped us figure this space out, but it's evolving every day. So if you look at it, people who are on the drug, um, they tend to eat less. They're just not as hungry. We hear anecdotally that people say they don't have food noise in their head, which means they're not thinking about eating. They're not thinking about food all the time. And it, it changes how people think. So anyone on the drug might eat, again, 30 to 40% less as more and more people get on the drugs, as they become more accessible, more affordable, as they move from you know, their current form to a pill form. You know, the estimates are pretty high in terms of the number of people who could be on these drugs, and it will impact the food industry. Uh, you know, several big manufacturers have come out and said they're already seeing an impact. We think it's going to be a huge benefit for us because people are thinking about eating healthy. We hear that they don't crave junk food as much. So we are perfectly positioned with our two brands, Atkins and Quest, um, to really help satisfy their nutritional needs while they're doing this. It's so interesting. And I don't know if you saw this study that just came out, but um, there was a study recently released that looked at the addictive qualities of essentially junk food and how a lot of the packaged food companies in the 70s, 80s, 90s had deliberately loaded them with things that, that added to their addictive qualities. And so hearing you say, it's the first time I've heard food noise. Food noise, that's so interesting. Yeah. So, so um, it's interesting to think that we've now sort of manufactured a solution to the problem that we created, right, in terms of junk food. And of course, Atkins has been here all along, all along with just a, a little bit more simple solution. Yeah, a, be a better for you, you know, providing people with things they want in a better for you form, Quest as well. And, you know, as we think about these drugs and how they impact how people think, um, again, food noise, it's such an interesting term. A consumer used that, that term. And it really resonated because we do hear, especially on the Atkins brand, the consumer is, oh, you know, I just, I, I, I finish a meal and I think what I'm going to about, what I'm going to have for my next meal. And so it removes that angst. And so they're very focused on eating more healthfully mm -hmm. and our products really deliver a nutritional punch. Yeah, and it's, they do. And it's a remarkable story, one that you've been central to. If you think about sort of the history of Dr. Atkins and the, the you know, no carb, low carb craze, if you will, a lot of products that are born on a diet fad really struggle to then sort of perpetuate after the fad. And yet your Atkins has been able to do that. I'm just curious, maybe what are the learnings from that? I would say Atkins isn't a fad. It was a fad when it started. It was very new. You know, Dr. Atkins was here in New York. It was the Vogue diet for a while. And it's basically 100% of people are aware of it. Um, low carb, low sugar isn't a fad. It's here to stay. So Atkins and Quest as well, both brands have been very true to their roots. 
So when intermittent fasting came along, we didn't say, oh, do this now. We actually said, if you want to do it, here's how Atkins can be an ally for you. But we've, we've not varied from our approach. So I don't know anybody now that isn't in some way, shape, or form watching their carbs and sugar. Absolutely. So not a fat. Um, and it's interesting because you mentioned the two different brands and how different they really are. And yet, obviously, some similarities. But you've been leading marketing for both. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how do you navigate the differences between two very different consumer bases, company cultures, things like that? Right. So we, um, Atkins, the Simply Good Food Company, acquired Quest in 2019. We started the integration in 2020, right when COVID hit. And so it was very interesting doing that virtually. The Quest office was in El Segundo and Atkins is in Denver. With the exception of the brand team, every function is a shared service. So they work on both brands. The brand teams do have different cultures. You know, they grew up differently. Quest, you know, very entrepreneurial, uh, grew up through uh, CrossFit, through different uh, alternate channels, GNCs at specialty stores, now moving into mass. And Atkins grew up in Walmart, basically. So very, very different brands with very little consumer overlap. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's one of the reasons we liked Quest is similar philosophical approach to how you should eat, but very different consumer bases. Um, as we've evolved, as we've integrated, we are seeing a little bit more overlap between the buyers because the products do have similar macro profiles, but they're positioned very differently. Atkins is always going to have a weight management, weight wellness element to it. It's the, it's the history of the brand. It's trusted. And that's what we're known for. Quest, younger, more active lifestyle, just a different consumer group. So keeping those separate has been challenging, um, especially from an innovation standpoint. We do have shared R&D resources. So both brands, you know, R&D will cook up something amazing and both brands will arm wrestle over it. And quite honestly, we look at the product, we look at the consumer and say, where do we think it's going to be a better fit? And sometimes we have the same products. You know, obviously both brands have bars, both brand, uh, brands have protein shakes, um, both brands have cookies. But as we look forward and do uh, future looking innovation, especially in my new role, it's going to be really important to figure out how do we meet the needs of the different consumers. Mm-hmm. No, that certainly makes sense. Um, so we talked about you know, Atkins, we talked about Questing, true to their roots. Um, separate consumers, though, needing to be distinct for them. And you've used very different spokespeople and approaches to spokespeople for the two brands. So um, maybe can you talk a little bit about your philosophy when it comes to picking the right spokesperson, partnering with them in a way that's going to be effective, and maybe why they do seem to be a very different approach when you think about your, your Rob Lowe and your Wanda Sykes versus your Quest Leets, for example, right? So how do you, sure. how do you think about that? Sure. I'll start with Quest. Um, again, it's a natural evolution of the heritage of the brand. It grew up in CrossFit. Uh, they used to go to trade shows or events like Mr. Olympia. 
and very focused in that gym fitness world. Now, our consumers very often are young mothers who are busy just trying to make good choices through the day, but that root of being perfect for athletes, perfect for people who really want to excel in that way applies to the average consumer, you know, that, that is buying Quest. Um, we talk a lot on that brand about fueling your Quest. And the Quest can be very different. It can be getting through a crazy week for a working mother, uh, but still feeling like she ate well, taking care of herself so she can take care of her family, do a good job at work. Um, it could be for someone who hits the gym, you know, twice a day, and they really have a, a very specific goal around that. But Quest works no matter what that goal. So it's very much about people who have an achievement mindset. So if you look at that, athletes are the perfect embodiment of that. If you think about Atkins, um, the spokespeople have evolved. So when I joined the brand, Sharon Osborne was the spokesperson and she talked about losing 26 pounds in six weeks. And as consumers evolved, as the way people talked about weight and managing their weight evolved, we actually discovered Rob in about 2018. We didn't discover him, obviously he was very well known, but we realized, we learned that he'd been following an Atkins eating approach for decades, which is part of the reason he looks as good as he does. And that's a very different consumer. Not that there aren't goals associated with it, um, but he talks about just living a healthy lifestyle so he can um, do what he wants to do and feel good and look good while doing it. So that campaign began in 2018, and we stopped talking about losing weight quickly. Even though you can, consumers realized that's not good. If I do it, I'm just gonna gain it back. I wanna actually change the way I live. I wanna have a better lifestyle. And Atkins fit personal, perfectly with that, and that's what Rob had been doing. So he just embodied the brand. And it's so funny, I, I um, spoke with him a, a while ago and he said people are now calling him Mr. Atkins. They walk up and say, hey, Mr. Atkins. Um, and he loves the product, so he's just fantastic. So he's happy with that. Oh yeah, Good. definitely, Good. definitely. And then Wanda, so Wanda we just added to the campaign. Uh, it launched October 5th. And you know, Rob has been our spokesperson for a long time and he embodies the believer. You know, he is the person who just embodies the uh, Atkins uh, low-carb lifestyle. Wanda, a little bit of a skeptic. And so what we learned as we, you know, continue to learn more about our consumer, as well as people who aren't our consumers, there's still a lot of skeptics about Atkins out there who, you know, you talked about fad diets earlier. There are a lot of people who still think it's a fad and, you know, they think it's, different than it is. They think it's stricter. They think it's no carb as opposed to lower carb, but very different. And so we've set up this dynamic where Rob is the believer and Wanda is the skeptic. And so we literally go after um, some of the things that we hear consumers say. What do you, you know, I, I don't have to be doing Atkins to enjoy their products. No, you don't have to be doing Atkins. So it's a really fun dynamic that interjects humor, some cultural relevance into the spots. And uh, really so far, we've just got great, great feedback on it. 
what I, you know, you sort of, you, you opened this door and implied something that feels like actually a really big strategic choice, which is, you know, Atkins started out as a maniacal commitment. You could not eat a carb. Now it's, if you, you make this transition into being a lifestyle product, you say, we will fit in your lifestyle, right? And I loved your phrase of Atkins as an ally, right? And that is, it's saying like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just here to help you. And I think that that's, you know, that, I don't know, was that a, a organic evolution or was that something you sat down and really purposefully we, decided? It was very intentional. It was very intentional because it's always scary to make a change, you know, to go from a Sharon Osbourne type spokesperson talking about weight loss to a Rob Lowe person type person talking about lifestyle. It's a big change for a brand. And um, so it was very intentional. But what I think was important is we couldn't break down some of the barriers without doing it. So we want to own who we are. You know, we're proud of it. We've got this great heritage and we've helped millions of people. That said, you made a comment, you know, it went from being very maniacal, no carb. And it started out that way because Dr. Atkins was a um, cardiac doctor here in New York. So he was treating people who were really, really sick. He designed a program that wasn't for the average consumer. And so he had uh, steps, but it was a really complicated book. And, you know, no one ever got off the first step. Um, <laughs> so we had to simplify it and make it relevant for a broader audience. And, you know, Atkins was so good early on at talking about what they did and the quick weight loss. It's actually work. It's hard to get people to think differently about it, which is why I'm really excited about this campaign because it head on addresses a lot of those barriers that people have. Well, and I love the authenticity of it, right? Which is something that's really core to both brands, right? Staying core, you know, requests to their, their athlete in sort of performance oriented base into Atkins. So Rob's story is authentic for one reason. He was doing this already for many years. Wanda's is authentic to a whole different group of people that are saying, yes, I'm also skeptical of this and bringing those two things together. So, so how is it, how's it performing? Well, just started. So what's today? Today's the 17th? 17th, October 17th. So it's been out, it's been out for a little over a week, not quite two weeks. So, uh, all I can say is we've gotten great response. And the types of comments we're getting on um, social media, very different. Like, hey, I'm actually going to try Atkins now. It, 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 is achi- it appears to be achieving what we want, which is getting people to just question it. So the tagline, I don't know if you've seen the ad, is who knew? So it ends with, Atkin, uh, with um, Wanda saying, Atkins, who knew? And we want people to have that reaction like, oh, okay, I'm going to take another look. And maybe I'll learn something. Well, and that relates back to your earlier point that 100% of Americans know what Atkins or have an idea about what Atkins is. And so it sounds like your strategy was to get them to take another look. Exactly. Exactly. Because it is, in many cases, very different. So, um, you know, a lot of people will still play back exactly what you said. No carbs. No carbs. It's not true. Um, The average American diet has around 250 grams of carbs in it. Um, That's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. And if you look at Atkins, we have program, you know, or, you know, you can, you can be eating however many carbs you want and still have Atkins products. 
but it's not no carb, it's lower carb. So you can, you know, you can have a piece of bread, you can have fruit, you can have and enjoy life while still watching your carbs and managing your carbs so they're not so high. So one of the things that, you know, as an agency, right, we're, we work across a lot of different categories, a lot of different sectors, and some of them you can individually really relate to. And some of them you can't, right? It's you're not the target or whatever, and you don't really have a perspective on it. And either way, you got to kind of get in the minds of the consumers. I think that people tend to believe it's easier um, when you are the target, when you when you like like the product, use the product, those kinds of things. Um, I would actually say sometimes it's harder because your own bias has such a tendency to creep in, and you have to really keep that at bay as you're sort of studying what you're going to do next, and so. I'm asking this question through the lens of, you know, obviously you have your own like commitment to eating healthily. You have your family. They have their own perspectives on this. You're getting your feeds filled with the same fad things that we're all seeing on a daily basis. You know, like how do you draw that line between leveraging what you see and experience in your personal life or with your kids or, you know, like whatever versus like the data and, you know, what you see as a professional marketer? That's a great question and an ongoing struggle. Um, you know, I think when you work for an organization for a long time and you are a fan of the company, the brands that you have, um, you can get a little myopic sometimes, you know, and you've got, I've got my favorite Quest products, I've got my favorite Atkins products, and I don't understand why everyone doesn't love them. Um, so you do have to take a step back. And the, the thing for me, and I think this is why um, my career's kind of evolved, or, you know, revolved around innovation quite a bit, is I'm very curious. And when I look at marketing talent, whether it's brand marketing, agency, PR, anything, I always look for curiosity. And I will say my kids, who are both in college, keep me very curious. They, they keep me up to date. I look at what they look at. How do they absorb information? How do they make their choices now that I can't dictate their choices anymore? Um, and I learn. And you know, I'll go to the store and I'll watch how people look at the shelf. And so you do have to really take a step back. And you got to... You know, it's hard because you don't want to filter too much because you never know when something is going to be the next big thing. And, you know, there's paleo, there's keto, there's intermittent fasting, there's a million different ways. But what I'm realizing now, most of them are revolving around eating healthfully, you know, making better choices, getting out of the junk food circle, etc. And so... You know, we just spend a lot of time talking to people, um, reading social media, looking at things, looking at our competitors, um, what's working, what's not working. And it, it's getting more and more challenging. You know, it used to be that you'd put a product out, you know, and you would have a year to two years to get it going. Retailers would be more forgiving. They'd give you time. They're not so forgiving anymore. Like, you've got to be on with your products. You've got to drive awareness quickly. You've got to make sure you've got something that people will try and then want to buy again. So it's, it's definitely a balance. But I, I truly believe being innately curious is the most important element of being a good marketer. I, I think that's a great point. And so, of course, it, it 
begs the question of when you're hiring, you've mm-hmm. no doubt hired many, many people in your career. Mm-hmm. So you look for curiosity. Obviously, I would imagine as a trade. Yes. What else? What else are you looking for? Obviously, you want people who are driven, who want to succeed. Um, you know, it's so funny now because very rarely do I get a resume where the candidate isn't functionally qualified. You know, they've gone to a good school, a good program, they've got good experience, they've had great internship, whatever it might be. I I don't get bad resumes anymore. Um, I look for fit. Cultural fit is really important to me. Um, I've moved around a little bit, had some different jobs, and the ones where I've been the most successful, where I've wanted to stay and I feel like I've made the biggest difference is where there was a cultural fit because then your skills are more valued. They're a, you're able to really kind of get in, be yourself, and, and um, do what you were brought in to do. If it's a bad cultural fit, you spend so much time and so much energy um, trying to navigate politically or whatever it might be. So curiosity and cultural fit are probably two of the things that are most important to me. Obviously, like I said, functional skills, you can find so many qualified people. But I also tell candidates that. I'm like, you should be judging companies for how well you think you will fit. And that's good advice as well. So you mentioned retailers, new products, got to succeed right away. It's tempting where we sit today to look at things through maybe a very now lens. I'm curious, though, in your mind, has this always been this way or has this evolved over time? And what that is, is it feels to me like the brand and all of the marketing that happens before they get into the store matters a lot more now than maybe it used to. And that, you know, that sort of that last split second when you're standing at the shelf product, you know, the packaging, the placement, the, the you know, price discounts, things like that used to play a much bigger role. And now it's much more about sending them into the shelf with intent. But that could be a very now-centric view. I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's interesting because as I look at at products I've launched over the years, companies I've worked at, um, I'll just share a story. This is going back quite a ways. I was at Kellogg's. And when I was there, Nutrigrain was approaching well over $100 million, I believe, at that time. So it was a successful sub-brand within the Kellogg line. What we were launching at the time had to do almost as good as something that had been in the market for seven years. So I would say this is, I've, I've seen it for the past couple decades where uh, their, their tolerance for letting something sit on shelf is getting less and less. So therefore, when you get to shelf, you gotta be buttoned up. You don't have five iterations to get it right. Now, smaller brands sometimes have a little bit more leeway than a larger brand might, um, but the shelf space is just too valuable. And you know now it's, you've got six to nine months, and you know if your product gets to the shelf, Six months, retailers are making decisions for their next reset. Are they going to keep you or are they going to move it, move you out? And obviously, there's a lot of things impacting that decision. Do they have other 
things waiting in the wings to come in, which I guarantee you now they do, especially in the space that we play in. So we play in this better for you snacking arena, which is growing faster than the rest of the store. It's atomizing too. Exactly. And so I think it's, it's been going on for a while. I think it's going to be, it's more important now than it was 10 years ago. It was more important 10 years ago than it was 20 years ago. I think it's going to continue. Um, for us, as I look at it, I start thinking about different ways to launch. You know, what about launching online? You know, there's different hurdles. There's different expectations. It gives you time to figure things out. Maybe the positioning isn't quite right or the package isn't quite right or the, you know, pack size, whatever it might be. Challenges with that as well. And then you've got the challenges between the retailers. They all want unique products. They all want something. So it's getting more complicated for sure. Um, but it's also more interesting. You know, it's, it's, you can't launch failure after failure anymore. Not that we ever could, but um, it's getting much more competitive. Well, it's certainly getting more competitive, but I would say it also feels like some of the venture-fueled brands were feeling a pullback there. So um, just curious, again, as you do your three to five, is that going to, we going to see that come back? Are we going to be back into a period of a lot of sort of, uh, I guess I'll call it funny money, you know, that doesn't require profitability, you know, um, or is this like a change that's here to stay? You know, it's a great question. And if I could answer it, I probably wouldn't be working here, you know, <laughs> um, but I do think the pendulum continues to swing back and forth. I think how far it swings tends to get a little narrower because you've learned lessons and, you know, investment, you know, big investments are risky, but there are still a lot of great smaller brands that I think are going to be very interesting for companies um, that, you know, it's, it's so challenging to incubate when you're a large company. And I know Kellogg's had one, White Wave when I was there, we had an incubator, Frito, Pepsi, they all have them. Very challenging. There's more freedom when you're a privately held company or you're VC back to try things, to build a brand, to get it right. Um, so I don't think it's gonna go away. I think we'll just keep getting smarter about it and the pendulum will go back. When I love the, the, the visual of the pendulum swinging a little bit less each direction every time we go yeah, through Yeah, you get cycles. a little bit smarter. And, you know, as, as uh, a company, you know, I've been involved in, in quite a few mergers and acquisitions over the years. And some of them have gone incredibly well. And again, it, it has to do with the fit. How does the organization fit with the host organization? Um, how are they integrated, et cetera. Um, so again, you just keep getting smarter. All right, so let me ask, cultural fit. So you've worked at places like Kellogg's as well as Simply Good Foods, and White Wave is probably similar to Simply Good Foods, right? These seem to be very different, right? The, the sort of the behemoth of a Kellogg's versus the like more the challenger, like midsize, you know, type uh, manufacturer. So as, as you think about that, do you have now a clear preference? Um, and how would you advise others when they're looking at cultural fit from the outside? Like, how do they, how do they get a better feel for that? It's a great question. And, and honestly, for me, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, and, you know, I worked 
Clorox, but you know, I started out in the auto industry and think about innovation. So that has been my primary career. Um, innovation in automotive takes years, sometimes decades. Um, I, I think I worked on something right out of college that came to market 10 years later after I'd already left the organization. So part of it has to do with what do you, what, how individuals feel rewarded. Like, do they get excited seeing things launch quickly? You know, then I went to Wendy's where I, I worked for a little while and I could get a new product out in six months as long as it used existing ingredients and maybe one new ingredient. Um, so I think part of it is pace, how people like to make decisions, um, you know, and you hear, it's pretty rare to hear someone who's like, you know, oh, I like to take my time. I like to, but there are people like that. So I think you've got to look at how the company makes decisions. How do they move? What's their track record? You know, a company that never makes a mistake, probably not a lot of risk. There's mm. probably, they over-research. They do too much. It takes too long. They're probably not as competitive. Um, you know, I think you can get a good feel by just seeing how people walk in the office. Are they, you know, sitting at their desk, not walking around, you know, just glued, very analytical? Are they engaged in hallway conversations? So a lot of it is of observation, again, being curious, asking the questions, but understanding the risk tolerance and how companies make decisions, very important. I did a very short stint at a financial um, company in Columbus, Ohio, that will remain. You really have done the full, the have, full buffet. I have. And, you know, they sold me on, we want you to come in and we want you to be an agent of change, which for me is Nirvana. And I was like, if you think about an industry that needs change, financial services needs change. I got there, they really didn't want to change. And honestly, I had a pretty strong inkling before and I was like, nope, I'm going to do this. I can do it. Well, you know, a Fortune 100 company, it was me against, you know, the entire organization. And I stayed a year and two weeks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just not a good cultural fit. Yeah. So it's really asking questions, asking, you know, if you can find people who've left the organization, um, do you know, homework. do your homework. Yep. Exactly. It's funny. It's on the agency side. It's very similar when you, you get these RFPs all the time and they say something similar, right? We want to shake it up. We want big ideas, you know, whatever. <clears throat> that means different things to different it people. Does. And sometimes you come in like they wanted a big idea and we're going to pitch the biggest idea we can think of. And they're like, no, no, well, we kind of meant like what we did last year, like plus 10%, <laughs> you know, and that's, so yeah. you got to kind of assess what do they really mean when they say yeah. that? What does it look like to them? Yeah. Yeah. Agree completely. Well, Linda, I, I have to say thank you for your time um, and, and sharing all your insights here today. We appreciate it. I'm sure that everybody listening is going to really enjoy hearing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.